Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life with the advisors from Foster and Motley. In this podcast, they share their mission to help individuals, couples, and families achieve the life they envision by providing a comprehensive wealth management experience. Join this seasoned team of experts as they explore actionable steps to improve your financial well-being and answer your most pressing questions. We've had the privilege in this podcast to get to know some of the people at Foster and Motley, people who care for their clients with conviction and purpose. We've spoken with financial planners and investment managers along the way, looking at how each role views the various aspects of a given topic. Today, though, we're changing that up a bit. We have two investment managers with us to explain more about their side of the business and how they help clients prepare for the future. And then next time, we'll dig into the financial planning side of things. I'm Patrice Sikora. And while we have heard from both of these guys before, let me welcome back Ryan English and Tom Guidi. Gentlemen, really great to talk to you again. And now, hey, you are in the spotlight. You get to tell us what you do. So, Ryan, I'm throwing the question at you. What is an investment manager? Yeah, Patrice, this is certainly an exciting topic for Tom and I. <laughs> Not having financial planners on this podcast. I won't, but, I won't ask what you really mean by that. <laughs> but go we ahead, won't tell, me. tell them either. <laughs> what, what is investment management, though? So investment management, I mean, that's a very broad term, right? So and it's, it can be described or, you know, it has several different names. Um, one of the more common ones is asset management. And asset management is certainly is a, a component of investment management. You typically refer to asset management when you're thinking about institutional asset management or not-for-profit or endowments or mutual funds. Um, those are typically asset managers. Um, portfolio management, certainly a component of investment management. I mean, investment management encompasses portfolio management, you know, selecting underlying securities within the portfolio coming up with an asset allocation for clients, um, thinking about withdrawal strategies, um, and many other things like that. Do you have to change your your change up your game when you're dealing with different clients? Not necessarily. All clients are, I mean, they're all a little bit different, right? I mean, they have different needs off the portfolio, different, certainly different asset levels in terms of what, you know, what they've accumulated, but their risk tolerance, uh, different factors will come into play with what their ultimate portfolio looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. But as far as, you know, what are the best investments for each client? I mean, at Foster Motley, we, you know, we have a set, set criteria or set investment process where, you know, no matter what the client's situation is, um, those stocks that are the best uh, that we feel are the best investments at the time are appropriate for all of our clients in the in investment management side. All right. Now, Tom, when I think of financial planning, it's it's pretty straightforward. Financial planning, we're planning somebody's finances and they will be involved with this. But investment management, how involved is your client? Uh, that's a great question, Patrice. Thank you. The investment management process um, involves a lot of work up front where uh, we set direction uh, 
how much risk a client is willing to take on, what their goals are, what their timeframes are. And from that, we determine an asset allocation. So um, how much risk they're going to take, how much they're going to have in riskier investments like stocks, uh, less risky investments like bonds or any other class of investment. Uh, but from there, the client is less involved. Uh, we are making the day-to-day -day management decisions, uh, selecting investments, rebalancing the portfolio as needed, um, harvesting tax losses, all the things that are involved with the investment management process um, without the day-to-day -day input from the client. Now, we're still there to answer questions that the client might have, um, what is this investment that showed up in my portfolio? We report to them on an ongoing basis, sometimes as often as quarterly, more often once or twice a year, uh, just to discuss their portfolio and how it's performed. Uh, but the client is not involved um, as much in the day-to-day -day process of selecting investments. Uh, and, some and clients have had, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, and are they comfortable with this? Uh most, it takes a little bit of time. So I spoke about, you know, the quarterly reporting versus annual or semi-annual reporting mm -hmm. for how, how the portfolio is doing and having meetings to discuss that. Uh, with most of my clients at the beginning, it's quarterly or maybe even a little bit more often that we're reviewing the portfolio, discussing how it's done um, so the client has a comfort level. After a few years, um, most clients have moved to once or twice a year, probably more often once that they're really interested to hear how everything is going. They still get quarterly reports that we send out to them. They can view their accounts on a day-to-day -day basis on, on our website. Uh, but to really hear from us, they've, they feel more comfortable and and they're just happy with what we're doing. I think they do find some comfort with that. The other you know, model, and it's, it's probably very much a legacy model for managing investments, um, meaning it's something that's going away, uh, is the broker model, where if a broker finds a certain investment attractive, they might call some of their clients and suggest it to their clients and get the client's approval before placing a trade. It's kind of an inefficient uh, process. We know there's, uh, you know, the broker has a, their own goals and their own compensation. Mm -hmm. So clients are always suspicious of, of the motivations behind an investment recommendation. Um, so the discretionary investment management where we take over for the day-to-day -day management, I think a lot of clients find a lot of comfort in that eventually. It does take a little bit of time. The broker model was also, or has also been impacted by the fact that you look at across the custodians now, Charles Schwab, Fidelity. I mean, you there's zero cost to trades. There's zero cost for a stock trade. There's zero cost for an ETF trade. So the model of sort of selling stock uh, ideas in terms of recommendations and collecting a brokerage commission that historically was much larger in the past is gone. And that's you know, really how discretionary money money management has come into play more so. But I think, Patrice, also one of the main questions we get from clients that um, or prospective clients that come see us is they're typically transitioning into retirement. They've, you know, their whole life have collected a paycheck, a W-2, and making that change 
from you know your company paying you to actually living off your portfolio is one of the things that um, you know they're most concerned with. They have the most uncom you know they mm-hmm. have the least amount of comfort with, and you know that's where we come into play to to help them understand how they're going to live off this portfolio. Coordinating the distributions, where which accounts will the distributions come from, in the most tax efficient manner. So you know certainly we've all we all work to save money to ultimately retire and. And investment management is really helping clients make that transition to living off their portfolio. Tom, tell me more about the process. The main goal is to have a set of investments that meets the client's goals, doesn't exceed the risk tolerance, meaning that if there's a down market, they're still willing to stay the course. They don't um, want to sell everything out at the absolute bottom. That's obviously the worst case scenario. <laughs> so it's a lot of work up front to define their goals, define their income goals, their savings goals in retirement or otherwise. Uh, it's determining the risk tolerance. So part of that is a questionnaire that we have clients fill out. Um, part of that's just talking about their past experiences, how they've managed you know, the 2008 downturn, the tech bubble bursting, um, all these things that have come up in the past. And what did they do when they were managing it on their own or managing it with somebody else? Uh, and that gives some insight into how they might react to the next time. From there, you determine an asset allocation. So the amount of more growth-oriented investments like stocks, the amount of more income or stable investments like bonds, and you memorialize it. You put it in an investment policy statement. Um, that's our marching orders for how to manage the accounts. So that includes all the restrictions that we have, the goals that the client has, and the asset allocation. So how much in stocks, how much in bonds, how much in any other types of investments um, we're going to invest and we stick to that. So by sticking to it, it means that, well, uh, when the market goes up, if the client's targeting 60% in stocks and suddenly they have 65, just because the market's done pretty well, we're going to be selling back to 60%. Or conversely, um, like we experienced during the depths of the COVID crisis back last Mm. March, client's portfolio fell along with the rest of the market. And at that point, yeah, it didn't feel very good, but we're buying. We're buying not because we're trying to time the bottom. That was a very difficult thing to do, especially with how quickly um, the market recovered. But we're buying because they had less than 60% stocks. Um, and that was their target on their investment policy statement. So we're um, buying stocks in the portfolio to fill back up to the 60% and rebalancing. Yeah. And and to Tom's point, I mean, we are rebalancing to a target, but we certainly aren't doing any market timing. We do not believe that you can consistently predict the movements of the stock market. It's too it's too difficult. There's nobody out there that has consistently done it, and we don't we do not try to do it. So we maintain our disciplined approach, and as Tom mentioned, the investment policy statement serves as that roadmap for how we will manage client portfolios. And how we will act not only in times of stress, 
when the market has declined, but in times of euphoria as well. Mm -hmm. So when stocks become a bigger percentage than our target, you know, certainly we're looking to scale those back or sell them to bring them back in line with the target. All right. Tell me about structuring the portfolio. Yeah. I mean, from a high level standpoint, you know, the two main asset classes, right? Stocks and bonds are pretty much what everyone thinks about for a portfolio allocation. But then even from looking under a more detailed asset allocation from those two asset classes, it's, you know, within bonds. Well, how much in treasury, how much in U.S. treasuries are you going to own? How much in, you know, investment grade, as we call it, investment grade mid credit are you going to own? How much in high yield? How much in international? Uh, so allocating across different bond sectors is something that, um, you know, we also look to do and we we do rotate amongst those bond sectors, depending on what we perceive as the particular sector offering the best value at that particular time. And then within stocks, right? I mean, everyone thinks U.S. stocks, the S&P 500, but then you've got to, you either can make the decision, of course, to mimic the market in terms of its allocation when thinking about, say, sectors, right? I mean, you've got the gig sectors, 11 gig sectors, um, Will you allocate, you know, say 25% to the technology sector because that's what the market weight is, or will you make a decision um, to under or overweight that particular sector for various reasons, whether that's a fundamental criteria or, you know, some sort of um, outlook that you may have. So, you know, we, we do not um, mimic the sectors per se. We have our own methodology where we're allocating across sectors. And then there also comes into play where you've got um, international stocks too. If you look at the global equity market, right? And you say, well, how much is the U.S. Um, stock market as a percentage of the whole? You know, it's certainly not 100%. It's more towards uh, 50%. So there is a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of equity value outside of the United States, and um, you know, coming up with a methodology to to target investment in, in international stocks is also something that you know, is considered. It's not just, you know, how much. So overall, it's not just in how much in stocks and how much in bonds do you own. There's there's certainly things under the hood that um, some decisions that have to be made and, and accounted for. And Tom, how about some alternative investments? Do you look at those? So we do use some alternatives. We use alternatives within the categories that's been discussed. So for bonds, we're using, um, we term it alternative credit. Really, they're just bond investments that aren't part of the index, things that might involve consumer debt, small business debt, um, or other categories, specialty credit, um, that are still attractive from a risk reward standpoint. We use other investments such as real estate, things that do well when there's higher rates of inflation to protect against that risk, or in a even more esoteric investment uh, choices uh, that are available to us and that make sense. Um, the reason for all of those, to a certain extent, is because in the past, the relationship between stocks and bonds is, is really attractive. Um, it's attractive in that in a lot of bear markets for the stock market, bonds actually did pretty well. Mm. Uh, bonds do well when interest rates fall. So um, you can think back to you know the financial crisis that that 
point, um, U.S. Treasury rates fell and, and bonds did pretty well. Um, the same thing happened during the COVID crisis. Same thing happened uh, when the tech bubble burst. So, you know, going back decades, it's pretty consistently bonds helped a lot with a mm -hmm. balanced investment um, strategy. The problem we're facing today is bonds just don't pay as much as they used to. Mm -hmm. And so along the way, you're earning less. And remember that bonds appreciate in value when interest rates fall. They don't have that much room to fall anymore. So we look for other types of investments that are attractive, that aren't a stock, aren't a bond, and can provide some benefit to the overall portfolio. All right. I see a note here, Ryan. Asset location, not allocation, but location. Tell me about that. Yeah, asset location is um, certainly an interesting aspect of, of portfolio management. Because, I mean, typically a client walks in the door, they don't just have one investment account. They have different account types. So they have a taxable brokerage account, a Roth IRA, and an IRA. I mean, maybe they've rolled their 401k over into an IRA. So, you know, the makeup could be three accounts three different account types. And you got to determine, well, which assets am I going to own in, in each of these accounts? And certainly the easiest way to do it is you're going to own the same thing in all three. But from a tax efficiency standpoint, that's not the best thing to do from the investment management side. And certainly a Roth IRA is, is the most beneficial account you can have from a tax standpoint. So you want to put the most or the, the growthiest investments the growthiest? I like that. The yes. growthiest. That okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll coin that, uh, that term here. Uh, you, you want the most appreciation, essentially, because when you withdraw, or if you ever withdraw that money, it's certainly a good um, vehicle to um, you know pass down to your heirs as well. You don't have to pay taxes on those withdrawals. In a taxable brokerage account, one of the best things to own, in our opinion, is individual stocks because you can control when those capital gains are realized and you can manage your tax picture and do tax planning a little bit better when you hold stocks in a taxable account. Of course, dividends are taxed at a very favorable rate. As it stands right now, it's, it's to be determined whether that is going to change. We, I, I'm sure we'll find out as the year goes on. And then in an IRA, I mean, certainly if someone is retired, and you know, ultimately, they're going to have to take required minimum distributions. The IRS is going to say you must withdraw a certain percentage of this account each year, which typically could be something that um, they use to live off of. You may want to make the allocation a little bit more conservative and own some more fixed income um, to get some less to get less volatility in that particular account because you're requiring um, you're, you're anticipating um, withdrawing money from that account just based on what you have to do for the IRS. So, you know, you would own taxable bonds in that particular account uh, versus allocating to tax exempt bonds or municipal bonds in a taxable brokerage account. So, you know, when we, when we manage client portfolios, these are things we think about where can we place these assets in the best manner to get the most after tax bang for, for our client's buck. Tom, you did mention earlier talking to clients and learning more about their risk perspectives. Does this help you when it comes to establishing benchmarks? 
Establishing benchmarks really helps with a conversation in the future. When you establish a benchmark and you do it in the investment policy statement, what you're trying to do is cre uh, create an index, essentially a custom index, that's going to look a lot like their accounts. Um, so for U.S. stocks, well, let's talk, step back, an index. Um, indexes are reported on the news at night. There are things like the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And there's indexes for not just large U.S. stocks that they represent. There's indexes for bonds. There's indexes for real estate, international stocks. You name it, mm -hmm. there's probably an index for it. So no single index represents a client's portfolio, meaning it's not, if you compare it against the S&P 500, it's not a fair comparator because, well, it's not only invested in large U.S. stocks, it's investing in all these other categories. Um, so what you try to do is create a custom index that invests in approximately the same proportions as they do in their account, meaning that for large U.S. stocks, you're using a large U.S. stock index. For international stocks, you're using an international stock index, bonds, a bond index, and so forth. And the performance of the index versus the account, they, they end up looking somewhat similar, meaning there'll be years where their portfolio will outperform and there'll be years where the portfolio underperforms. Uh, but that becomes a really useful talking point in meetings because you're not hiding performance from a client. You're very upfront about this is what's going on right now. There's going to be times where it's worth it to discuss why the account's outperforming, why things are going well. Um, you wouldn't want it to be, uh, we took some extra risk over here. That's not the answer that a client should want to hear. You just say, well, you know, right now, maybe it's um, the type of stocks that we invest in are doing a little bit better. Um, and they were doing worse a few years ago, and, and now the wind's at our back. Or it could be a time where uh, things are going poorly, and it's worth having the discussion with the client so they feel comfortable with the why. They stick to it, and they're around for when the, um, things turn. If an investment manager really keeps his nose to the grindstone, does he outperform the market? Certainly the expectation is over the long run that the answer to that question would be yes, but not every year does an investment manager outperform uh, the benchmarks. Uh, I mean, certainly different styles can be in favor, uh, but if you stick to your, your discipline, I mean, typically that's been a successful strategy in the long run. And in perspective, clients do have the option of, you know, doing it themselves or essentially buying ETFs. Vanguard's one of the most popular vehicles to do that with. And they can have, they can certainly have a lot of success um, and ultimately a great outcome if that's the route they choose. Let's define first ETF, exchange traded fund. So, I mean, they're very similar to mutual funds, but they trade throughout the day. They do not have an open end structure and they can trade at a premium or a discount throughout the day to their net asset value or essentially what their underlying holdings are worth. And in a mutual fund, you buy and sell it at four o'clock each day and you get the net asset value. Mm -hmm. um, so there's not really market makers throughout the day making markets in these ETFs. And there's no bid ask spread that you have to 
that you're going to have to cross and, and potentially pay for. And we certainly have ETFs in our portfolios. They are a good way to get um, diversified exposure at a very low cost way. Um, but the main, when you think about investment management, one of the main ad- value adds an investment manager um, adds to the relationship is the disciplined, unemotional aspect of managing the portfolio. So, you know, you can you can certainly identify a number of ETFs that will will likely be good in the long run, but maintaining the appropriate exposure and allocation to them is what is difficult in in markets year in and year out. You know, putting cash to work. I mean, typically we see uh, prospective clients have a decent portion of cash where they're just looking um, to put that money to work, but it's very hard to make that step without a professional investment manager because you've seen the market probably go up and up and up. And you think to yourself, gosh, I would have, I wish I would have put this to work, but you know, an investment manager can unemotionally um, certainly help with that discipline. All right. Right. You And it all goes back to that investment policy statement where we define the amount of exposure to stocks, the amount of exposure to bonds. So, you know, once again, example of targeting 60%, if things are down, it's buying, if things are up, it's selling. Um, But that you think about when things are down, it doesn't feel good to buy. And when things are up, we kind of get greedy and we think, oh, things are going to keep going up. We're all- We're all greedy. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. Um, So it's- it's that level of discipline. Um, there's certain people that can do that for themselves. All right. So how do, I'm in the market, let's say, how do I choose an investment manager? And do and are you sexier than financial planners? Do I need you both or do I need one or the other? Well, you probably need an investment manager much more than a financial planner, <laughs> at least to foster <laughs> Motley. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's it really comes down to meeting with the team that you're looking to hire, talking to several different firms, seeing, you know, who you think is the best, best fit to work with you over the long run, talking about their approach to investing. Not all investment managers have the same approach. Certainly there's many different aspects to consider. I mean, take um, your stock investing style. I mean, there's value investing, there's growth investing, there's passive investing, you know, then on top of that, you, you have to inquire or get comfortable with whether the investment manager is using individual stocks or ETFs or mutual funds or what particular vehicle they may be using to achieve the asset allocation that they ultimately will be recommending. So I think it's, it's also a matter of, you know, the, a fit with the client in terms of what their beliefs are and what their experiences have been in the, um, in the stock market over time that helps select an investment manager. And then, you know, certainly, uh, you know, certainly a financial planning piece is important. I mean, it's, it's a big factor in all of our um, wealth management uh, client relationships that, that they do play a role. So they work together at our firm and I don't necessarily think that they always work together as, um, as clearly at, at other firms. So I think that uh, is becoming a bigger differentiator right now. You didn't answer my question though. Which position is sexier, financial <laughs> planner or, or uh, investment manager? 
<laughs> all right, all right. I, I won't leave you there. I won't leave you in the on the hot seat there. Tom's just both smiling. are pretty boring. <laughs> Tom is just smiling. <laughs> I'm glad you're he. You asked him. Well, I'm going to ask you, Tom. How can people reach you if they want to talk to an investment manager? Yeah, I think. Um, the best way to do it is um, get some background information. Um, you can take a look at our website, which is fosterandmotley.com. Um, you can give us a call um, and we have an investment manager that you could talk to and, and get a better idea of our process, our controls, the discipline that we apply. Um, our phone number is 513-561-6640. And um, yeah, I think it would be a worthwhile conversation for someone to have. Ryan, any last thoughts? I get, just to answer your, your question, Patrice, I guess I'll, I'll put it this way. Good thing. I will say that planners and investment managers, we have faces for podcasts. Touche, <laughs> touche. Ryan, Tom, great discussion on the role of an investment manager and the value that you do add for clients. For more information about any number of topics, make sure you subscribe to Foster and Motley's podcast about life and wealth. Share and please comment. Let us know what questions you may have. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content, including mention of specific investments or planning techniques, is for informational and for educational purposes only. It is not intended as a recommendation or a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.